You are listening to the PFAS Research and Remediation Podcast Series, produced and created by Arcadis, with funding from the Environmental Security Technology Certification Program, ESDCP, grant number ER23-7692, through the United States Department of Defense. All opinions, interpretations, and conclusions expressed belong to the hosts and guests and do not represent views or policies of the Department of Defense, Arcadis, or guest affiliations. In this first season, we're focused on PFAS and interview a broad panel of experts who have each contributed to the growing knowledge base around remediating this emerging chemical of concern. Today, we'll be speaking with Dr. Paul Hatzinger, Director of Aptum's Technology Development Laboratory in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Paul has served as a principal investigator on several DOD-sponsored research projects focused on per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS. In our conversation, we'll be highlighting his project, ER20-5182, titled Validation of Colloidal Activated Carbon for Preventing the Migration of PFAS in Groundwater, which looks at the use of injectable carbon to immobilize PFAS constituents in situ. I'm Dr. Craig Devine, a technical expert with Arcadis, and I'll be your host today. Well, Paul, thanks for providing your time uh, for this podcast and look forward for you to highlight some of your work on PFOS generally. But before we get started, I was wondering if you could give us a brief summary of your role at Aptum and a little bit of your technical background, just a little bit of who you are. Yeah, so I grew up in upstate New York, did undergrad work at St. Lawrence University in environmental studies. Primarily, I wanted to be a forest ranger. There's only you know a couple forest rangers in uh, upstate New York, so that didn't work out. Had a girlfriend at the time who was a vet student at Cornell, and uh, I was working in lovely Lake Placid, New York, and decided to go back to grad school. So I drove down and interviewed at Cornell and basically started a PhD program in environmental toxicology. And then when my postdoc was done, I, I took a job at a, at a small company called Envirogen. Uh, we were a biotechnology company that started up in the mid-80s. And the idea was to bring together basically environmental engineers and microbiologists to try and improve you know, bioremediation, the, the whole art of bioremediation and bring more science to it. You know, at the time in the mid eighties and early nineties, there were a lot of sort of bag of bugs yeah, kind I of salespeople. That. They're still there, <laughs> but you know, there were, there was even more, uh, basically, you know, we have this culture that can degrade everything from PCBs to benzene, it's aerobic, it's anaerobic. And so basically the whole industry was, was really sort of based upon at the time, just really not the science that was coming out of the universities. But I now um, am director of a research and development group at Aptum, and there's still several of us there that date back to Envirogen, and that's you know that was 20 years earlier. So you know through through that time, most of my work has been involved with emerging contaminants, and you know we started out doing a lot of work with chlorinated solvents early on. Right, that's that's still you know, a large part of our business, I think for all of us, but you know, things, things sort of came along the way. One of them was perchlorate. So I spent a number of years working on perchlorate and then uh, NDMA. So nitrosamine, which is a rocket fuel component. And then from there, you know, we went on to 1,4-dioxane. And then in the past five or six years, you know, sort of this, this issue with PFAS, which, you know, six or seven years ago was called PFCs, perfluorinated compounds. The acronym was changed to one that's much more difficult to, uh, write about, whether it's PFASs or PFAS. And honestly, I, I, I kind of never saw coming sort of what's, what's evolved from that. I don't, I don't know that anybody did. Yeah. Why you do know? you think that is? I mean, what's different about this class of compounds, uh, either technically or maybe socially that you think is driving? You know, with PFAS, 
So you start to say, well, why why are we looking at this so closely? And I and I think, you know, it always sort of comes back to a couple of things. One is the toxicology, right? So how potent, you know, toxicants are these different PFAS compounds? And I don't think we have an answer to that right now. Not yet. You know, it's very, very complicated when you have these these huge mixtures in terms of, you know, what are we looking at? But the other issue with these is the fact that we can detect them and are concerned about them at a few nanograms per liter. You know, it's almost unheard of that we're, at least in my career, that we're looking at compounds, you know, when we have something that's, you know, 50 nanograms per liter, and that's really of concern. And frankly, if we could detect all of the other contaminants that we work on and we're concerned about them in a few nanograms per liter, um, you know, PFAS would probably wash into the yeah. background by comparison of other things that we know are, are out there, you know? Well, I, I think it's pretty interesting times for us to be on the front side of something like this and, and see how our industry, you know, works its way through and also hopefully takes advantage uh, of the lessons from past contaminant classes that have been new at some time. So, well, you know, transitioning a bit. Um, so you're the PI for a new ESTCP project, DR205182, that's titled Validation of Colloidal Activated Carbon for Preventing the Migration of PFAS in Groundwater. So I can tell you there's a lot of interest in this project because uh, the technology that it evaluates offers really one of the only potential solutions, or at least currently, for in situ uh, management of PFAS-impacted groundwater. So if you don't mind, could you just briefly outline the overall project and some of the major scope and I would say performance objective goals. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think if we if we go back to what's different about PFAS, one of the things is that we currently don't have really good destructive mechanisms that we can apply in situ. You know, if we look at our history of chlorinated solvent remediation, um, it took us a long time to sort it out, but there there are biological degradation mechanisms that we began to figure out in the late 80s, early 90s. We saw that these things were degrading. We then say, okay, well, how's this happening? And over a period of 30 years, we sort all of that out. And now that's really, you know, one of the major approaches we use to treat chlorinated solvents is bioremediation. But along the way, we also realized they're oxidizable, you know, so you can use oxidants and there's all sorts of oxidants you can use. What's different currently with PFAS, and, and perhaps it won't be in the long run, although I'm a bit skeptical, is that we don't have anything. So all of these tools in our toolbox that we use for chlorinated solvents haven't proven to be applicable in situ for PFAS. These structures are so chemically stable. They're also very diverse, right? They're chemically stable and they're diverse and they're present at very, very low concentrations. But we're yet to have any proof that in nature, bacteria are breaking these down to endpoints where we're no longer concerned. So we have a problem in that we have plumes. We're concerned about these compounds at nanograms per liter. They're moving toward endpoints. They're moving toward drinking water wells, or they're already impacting drinking water wells. So the question is, what can we do to prevent that migration somehow? So in the absence of being able to break things down, then the question becomes, can we stop them? So can we protect downgradient receptors or wells by putting in some type of barrier? This is certainly not new either. I mean, this is something we did for chlorinated solvents before we sort of understood the destructive part of this. And in, in some sense, that's what pump and treat is, right? I mean, pump and treat is putting in a hydraulic barrier. You pump the water up, you protect your downgradient receptors, and then you treat everything ex situ. And we're doing that quite a bit for PFAS. But what can you do in situ? So one of those options is to try and enhance its absorption so that as it moves into some some zone, it absorbs to a matrix of some type and then doesn't move any further. Now, you know, so the question then is, how do you do that? 
So a number of years ago, people started looking at at carbon compounds. So you know, we use granular activated carbon ex situ to <clears throat> treat all sorts of things. That's kind of our main medium that we use to absorb contaminants. So people started looking at whether you could put this into the ground somehow. But typically, this was basically accompanied by a destructive process. So there are, to my knowledge, at least four commercial products that you know date back probably a decade where they would be uh, injected into the ground. And the idea was the contaminant would absorb to the carbon, but it was also injected with either an oxidant or nutrients to grow bacteria. So the carbon sort of absorbs and uh, accumulates the compound, but the bacteria then either break it down or the oxidant breaks it down. So you have a combined, you know, it's like a sorptive barrier with destruction. Sort of a trap and treat. Trap strategy. and treat, right, yeah. right. Now, there's a compound called plume stop, which is basically a colloidal carbon. Now, one of the difficulties with all of these carbons, you know, carbon comes in kind of different sizes, let's say. So our granular activated carbon that we use in reactors is probably on the order of, um, you know, if you look at dimension, a half a millimeter to, to a millimeter, you know, granular uh, size particles. There's a powdered carbon that then gets down on the order of, uh, you know, say, 50 to 250 micrometers. Um, and then there are, there's colloidal carbon, which is sort of a newer thing, which is really small. It's bacterial size, like one to two micron diameter particles. The problem is when you inject something into the ground in a sandy aquifer, you have pores. And if something gets trapped in those pores, it doesn't distribute very far. And also, if you're using low pressure, you really can't get it into the ground. So most of these products early on were larger diameter particles. And the way they were in place is that you pump them in under very high pressure and you do what's called fracking. I mean, we all hear about fracking for gas and oil, but in this case, you're creating a zone where the contaminants will move out of a tight formation like a clay into this more porous zone. But in order to get it in there, you have to inject under really high pressure. The difference with the colloidal product, and that's what we're looking at in this ESTCP project, is that it's very, very small particles, so you can emplace it and it will distribute over a, a wide distance. So you could actually create a barrier that has some dimension. It's not just going to be right around your injection point, and you can do this under low pressure. So because the particles are so small, they're small enough to move through the, the pores in the, in the sand in the aquifer. So that's what makes this a little bit different. It was developed for chlorinated solvents. It was always meant to be injected with nutrients to grow bacteria. But as PFAS came along, as everybody did, we looked at all of our existing technologies and said, well, might this work for PFAS? And essentially, the, the company that's putting this out is named Regenesis. It's, it's one of their products. And I, I think as we move along, there's going to be more of this type of, of material. But they basically came out and said, yeah, I think this works, works pretty well for PFAS. You know, our lab work shows that, and we'd like to start doing this in situ. So as we sort of took a look at that, and the ESTCP program had a request for proposals out that basically they were interested in just the distribution of amendments it was one of the things that they were asking about at that time. So um, basically, I was kind of looking at that and and reading a bit about these colloidal carbon amendments, and it just sort of came to my mind that there there wasn't a literature yet behind this. So there wasn't really a good basic literature or a literature of, you know, sort of applications in the field where people had published studies showing a variety of things like how long does it last? You know, is this a solution that lasts a year or 20 years? At what point? And the idea is 
you can apply this in different ways, but you know, one is you put in a cutoff barrier. So you have a plume that's, you know, always obviously flowing with the direction of groundwater. So you put a barrier wall in. So you go in and you inject this material over the over the depth and, and width so that you have enough residence time for the material flowing through. So say, you know, on a small plume of barrier that's 50 feet wide by, you know, 50 feet deep in the groundwater, and then, you know, maybe 10 feet along the direction of groundwater flow so that, you know, water flows through the material. It's really fascinating because I I was curious on, at least at this stage, what your anticipation is the most likely use application scenario looks like. Yeah. I imagine your project is going to evaluate that in that specific use case, but have you thought about how this integrates with other uh, remedy strategies, how it integrates with, let's say, source activities or maybe an enhanced attenuation or M&A? How, how does this fit within our kind of toolbox of technologies for a PFOS site? And that's a great question. In terms of this current project, we're really looking at as a source, as a means to reduce the mass flux from a source. So I think you have multiple applications of this. And in its simplest form, you're increasing the fraction of organic carbon in an aquifer is what you're doing. I mean, you're not doing much more than that, yeah. right? So you're increasing the absorptive capacity of an aquifer. So, you know, in source areas, Obviously, one of the concerns is, and there's, a, again, a lot of CERTEP ESTCP research going on, but, you know, you have these areas where you've got a lot of PFAS caught up in the VEDO zone, right? So you're caught up in the unsaturated zone, and there's work by a lot of really good people now that, that are sort of looking at that and trying to understand what that source zone does over time. So if you get big rainfall events, say in New Jersey, where you can get rapid recharge, are you putting a lot of PFAS down into an aquifer? So you have this continuing source that's going to be a problem for years and years and continue to resupply this plume that's running down gradient of it. You know, so th the question is, is that the case? It certainly does seem to be so, although there's, you know, there's complexities to it all with the way these compounds interact. But that being said, so if you can, you can do a couple of things. You can remove the barrier. Right, so you you can uh, remove the uh, source area rather. So you can go dig up the source area, and then remove as much of this material as you can. Put it in, you know, put in clean fill. So it's it's like what we've done historically for chlorinated solvent sites. We remove the source, but there's also the potential that that becomes too expensive or it's too deep. So then the question becomes: Can we put in this type of material in, in a source zone just to reduce the amount of contaminants that are coming out of that zone and sort of ref? fueling a plume down gradient. And I think that's a very good use of it. Um, and can you combine it with other things? Well, yeah. I mean, maybe maybe you also need to think about a vadosone sorptive technology. If you're not going to remove the source, you know, can you add an amendment? And maybe it's not this. Maybe it's something else. But you know, maybe you go into the source zone, you mix in an amendment that absorbs as much as you can very tightly. And then you also add this in the saturated zone below it where again, because of the small particle size, you can get it distributed. Yeah. And then, you know, so you trap what's coming from the VEDO zone down with, with treatment A in the uh, unsaturated zone, and then you trap what's down in the saturated zone with, you know, with the colloidal carbon. So I think that's a great potential application. Yeah, so what you're describing, I mean, fundamentally, this is a mass flux reduction technology. And there's two places generally you think about focusing those technologies, and that's in a source area that represents the strength of the plume, basically. Uh, and then also, of course, at some important control point that is upgraded in some fashion of either a property boundary or a potential receptor, right? So it's a it's a safety net, and it's a in that function, it's it's acting as sort of your safety net and seatbelt. And you know, in in an upgraded scenario. It's mass flux reduction to, to sort of quiet out the plume or, or starve out the plume. 
Do you see an application plume wide? Is this something that you would you'd go through a whole plume and, and sort of carpet bomb? And what are you thinking about that? You know, that ultimately might be too costly. At this point, I don't know that there are solutions, there are trade-offs. And that's kind of the way we need to think, you know. So what's our top priority with this? Where we have some, again, and this has always been a dilute plume sort of issue. You know, even with chlorinated solvents, how do we deal with these plumes that are still above regulatory levels of concern, but are over very wide areas? In a lot of sites, that's where you want to get at the end is the materials attenuating before it gets to the receptors that we're concerned about. I think that will still be an aspect here. You know, it may not be biodegradation or, or destruction, but there are other processes, sorption, dilution, that sort of thing. Now, can you inject a whole plume? I don't think so. You know, can you put in a barrier wall? I mean, you can probably do that over reasonable distances, presuming that the plume is relatively shallow because it's the same limitations that we have throughout the whole industry. You know, you've got to inject this into the ground. And if the plume is 500 feet below ground surface, everything becomes expensive. It becomes difficult to do that, you know? Yeah. You know, I think, you know, the industry has matured a lot and not just for this contaminant class, but, but others, it's recognized that there's a toolbox of solutions uh, and that you apply multiple tools in each solution uh, set might look different given the problems. And so I see, you know, that's one of the key goals of, of your project is to really define sort of the sweet spot. And I imagine, you know, you're going to lead to possibly design practices and evaluate potential failure modes. Well, you know, there's, so there's a couple of things. One is when you make carbon, you know, there's different ways that, that carbon gets made and, uh, but it's a charged material and typically carbon is cationic. It's positively charged. Now, typically aquifer materials are anionic. There's silicas, there's clays that are net negatively charged. So, um, if you just went in and injected this positively charged material, you're probably not going to get very good distribution. So, you know, one of the uh, one of the things that that people need to do when they start thinking about this is, you know, how do we get it distributed? And the the colloidal carbon uh, material that I talked about before, which is called Plume Stop, they use a polymer basically, and it and it does a couple of different things. Is it it keeps the material in suspension, so it keeps it keeps the colloids in suspension. So it sort of stabilizes that so the material's not dropping out, but it also gives it sort of a net negative charge. So you can almost think of it, I guess, like the polymer kind of, you know, taking care of, of the, the positive charge material. So it allows it to move further in an aquifer. So that's sort of a, you know, that's a characteristic that we don't see for a lot of the things that we inject, which are carbon sources, right? We inject things like lactate and emulsified oils and you know, those sort of things pretty routinely these days, but that's, that's one of the things. And that's where there's, you know, still some science probably to go, because as I said, all, all of these products and pretty much everything we use was not developed for PFAS. It, it's been developed for other things. Uh, you know, you mentioned before some questions about longevity and overall right. capacity. That's not just presence absence. That's how much loading did you achieve? You know, exactly. there's going to be some design targets on that loading. Yep. So yep. I assume that'll help you sort of assess you know, actual loading versus design. And then maybe there's some performance on actual loading and what sort of treatment do you see yep. uh, associated with that? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I, did you get the material where it needs to be? Mm -hmm. You know, and the only way you can do that is pretty much, again, taking cores and trying to quantify it. So, And did you get it at levels you need, right? Or, or what are the, the levels, levels you, you achieved? Are there areas where you didn't get levels of these? Yeah. You know, if yeah. your overall goal is is reduction in mass flux, right? Then 
you know, perhaps perhaps it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, if you can get a 95 or 99% reduction, sure. perhaps yeah, you've done a pretty right. good job. And an expectation that in the subsurface, you can distribute something, even in a simple, what would be considered a simple geology, you know, it's it's challenging, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's a very challenging thing to do. Um, but you, you do need to quantify it. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, other, other questions are, you know, again, longevity. And typically these estimates are on the order of 30 plus years you know, 30 plus years of effectiveness in terms of absorbing mm -hmm. at least the longer chain yeah. compounds. Right. Now with all of these materials, including the colloidal carbon, the smaller chain compounds are still problematic. Sure. Right. You know, and, and they just don't absorb well to most materials. Yeah. And people are working on that. Right. You know, fortunately at this point, at least from what I've seen in terms of uh, EPA HALs, it seems like for some of the shorter chain compounds, they're much higher in terms of concentration. So yeah, right. you can allow more of it to sort of break through before there's a level of regulatory concern. We'll see how that plays out over the long run. But I think with any of these in situ sort of approaches at this point, that's, that they're going to continue to be a problem and ex situ approaches. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, ion exchange resins absorb them a little bit better. So one of our questions is, well, is this material going to change just the groundwater flow rate through the sure, aquifer, yeah. you know, and that's, that's a that filtering right? effect or hydraulic clogging or, or exactly. other processes might, might so is water going to yeah. start to flow around the barrier sure. at some period of time? And right. I, I don't think, again, I don't know that there's any answer to that mm -hmm. at this point. So yeah. one way to, to get at that is, well, you know, you can use piezometers, right? So you yeah. can start looking at changes in groundwater levels. So if you put in, you know, you put in your amendment, either in a source area or as a barrier, you know, having piezometers around the edges or sort of in the middle? And do you see changes in groundwater with time? Yeah, it seems to me a natural outcome. You're certainly going to find some opportunities for improving right. current practice. Yep. And uh, you yep. know, I, I could imagine part of your delivery will be sort of a guidance on current state of the technology. Right. Uh, right. In addition to sort of evaluating these potential failure modes, uh, you yep. know, in a rigorous sense at, at the field level. You know, the question that I often get just related to this project is, yeah, but are you really solving anything? Okay, so now you've got it here. You know, now it's still in the aquifer. It's still absorbed to carbon. Yeah. You know, is that really a solution? And and I right. guess I kind of go back to my point where you know there are no solutions yet. There's trade-offs. Yeah. Right. Right. And the, the trade-off for this is yes, it's still going to be in the ground. You know, you you're going to know where it is. Right. You're going to be have increasing concentrations of PFAS in this zone where you put the material in, or if it's a source area, no, but it's going to be you know more tightly absorbed there. But that to me is over 10 years or 20 years or 30 years right now, sort of the best we have. Mm -hmm. And if in 10 years, it turns out there's some oxidant that, that someone discovers that can oxidize this stuff, then, you know, perhaps you can inject that into these zones. Yeah, you know, maybe right. there is a, a phase two where, okay, yeah. we've trapped it. You've you trapped know? it. It's, you know where it is. Right. Well, Paul, this is great. Really appreciate your time. And uh, I, again, I'll, I'll restate, I can tell you a lot of people are very much interested in this project because I think they see it the same way you do, the, that it's a tool that's got an immediate application and there's a need to really understand sort of the best fit. So thank you for your work on it and, and look forward to the results. It's been a lot results. of fun, Craig. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast was funded by ESTCP and produced by Arcadis. The interview was conducted by Craig Devine and our guest today was Dr. Paul Hatzinger. If you're interested in more information on Paul's project, please visit serdp-estcp.org and search for the project number ER20-5182. If you have conducted your own research on PFAS and are interested in sharing your work, please email Teresa Gillette at teresa.gillette 
at arcadis.com. That's T-H-E-R-E-S-A dot G-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E at Arcadis, A-R-C-A-D-I-S dot com. And please keep an eye out for more episodes coming soon.